0: This is Dominic Preziosi, editor of Commonweal. The Catholic Church has much to say to women about the importance of families and fertility, but it's relatively quiet concerning the reality of infertility. On this episode, Associate Editor Regina Munch speaks with Emma McDonald, a doctoral candidate at Boston College, who has researched these issues extensively in a series of ethnographic interviews with Catholic women, doctors, and clinicians. Their conversation is coming right up. On the Commonweal podcast. Hi, Regina. It's good to see you today.
1: Hi, Dominic. Good to see you too.
0: And so you got to speak with Emma McDonald. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that?
1: So Emma is a doctoral candidate at Boston College who's doing research on Catholic women's experiences of infertility, and she interviewed 45 women about their choices about infertility treatments like IVF and NAPRO to understand how their faith is relevant to their treatment decisions and experiences of family formation. One thing that stood out to me was how much the stigma and the culture of silence around infertility makes women feel that they don't have anywhere to go in the church to talk about these issues, especially if they did choose to use IVF. We had a great conversation, and I should note that Emma is also a former Commonweal intern, so it was great to talk with her again.
0: Great. Thanks, Regina. looking forward to this conversation.
1: Thanks, Dominic. Thank you so much for being on the Commonweal podcast. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So you did research about Catholic women's experiences of infertility, and a lot of women express, first of all, that they feel guilt or shame in the church because of their infertility. Why do they feel that way?
2: So... There's a variety of reasons, I think, that women may feel guilt, shame, or some could call it stigma around the experience of infertility as Catholic women. I think one primary reason is that Catholic family life tends to be oriented around childbearing and childrearing. So many women I interviewed described how this was communicated in church settings in both overt and subtle ways that exerted pressure on them. And I can give you a couple examples of that. So for instance, the marital rite involves voicing openness to having children, pre-cana classes often involve discussion of starting a family, and parishes often organize activities around family life, from CCD to moms groups. So those kinds of structures in the church, along with Liturgical and festival emphases on Mary and the Christmas liturgy, for instance, make this focus on motherhood really primary among the experiences of Catholic women. So when women struggle conceiving and hope to, as many do, it can be really isolating and feel um, like it's the fault of the woman who is
1: experiencing that. In your research, you emphasize that you're less interested in scrutinizing individual women's choices and instead want to analyze the moral implications of the decisions that they have to make in this environment. What issues are on the minds of the women you talk to about
2: technologies like IVF or NAPRO? Sure. So IVF is usually used when couples are struggling to conceive for at least a year, and that stands for in vitro fertilization. So That involves retrieving eggs after some ovulatory stimulation is done, and then also retrieving sperm from either husband or donor. And that could also involve an egg donor, depending on whether the woman has viable eggs. Generally, IVF involves gametes from each partner, and they're combined in the lab, fertilized, becoming embryos. And then once they're embryos, they'll be transferred into the uterus. And hopefully, they will stick around and a pregnancy will continue. NAPRO, on the other hand, which stands for NAPRO Technology, is a mostly Catholic method. So, it was created by a Catholic physician, Thomas Hilgers, as an alternative to IVF that aligns with church teaching. Now, the church's official teaching prohibits the use of IVF, it says it's immoral. But some Catholic physicians in response to that teaching wanted an infertility technology that would be working in concert with natural family planning. So NAPRO essentially works with the fertility markers and tracking system that natural family planning involves to try to pinpoint the underlying issues in menstruation and ovulation that could be affecting fertility. And so the goal is to remove any barriers to fertility. So that can involve endometriosis. There could be a surgical operation done, but it does bypass the natural fertility methods, something like IVF would.
1: So for each of these approaches, what was on the minds of women that you spoke with when they were deciding, should I have IVF? Should I use NAPRO? What, what ethical decisions come with each of
2: them? Sure. So I would say it's somewhat unusual for any particular Catholic woman, at least among the women that I interviewed, to be deciding between NAPRO and IVF. And that's in part because of polarization in the church and the kinds of cultural environments in which Catholic women are uh, making reproductive choices. So, for instance, a Catholic woman who's thinking about using NAPRO is likely in an environment that emphasizes adherence to church teaching, that focuses on pro-life rhetoric, perhaps, that focuses on family life involving biological children, but also potentially adoption. So the women I talked to who opted for NAPRO put a lot of stock in following church teaching. That was really important to them. So the ethical issues they were thinking about were primarily Related to that official teaching coming from Donum Vitae, the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith document that came out in 1987, which found IVF and artificial insemination to be morally illicit. So they're thinking about embryo destruction as an issue, which can happen during IVF. They're thinking about issues with bypassing the procreative and unitive inseparability that that document talks about. And so that essentially involves this idea based on Humanae today from 1968 that procreation and union should always be held together in each individual sexual act within a marriage. Something like IVF would interrupt that inseparability by removing the unitive aspect, the uniting of two bodies in procreation because it's happening in the lab instead of as it might more typically happen. And a lot of Catholic theologians take issue with this very physical emphasis in Donum Vitae, and a lot of the Catholics I talked to did not find it compelling or intuitive. But the Catholics using NAPRO, whether or not they found it personally compelling in terms of the natural law logic of the teaching, felt that they needed to follow it because as the official teaching, it was authoritative in their eyes. And so most of the people using NAPRO I would say, are coming from that perspective. So it's more about Catholic identity and whether that identity primarily involves adherence to church teaching or other aspects. So women who are considering IVF, I would say tended to not either be aware or were not compelled by the teaching of the church. And that's overwhelmingly the more common perspective. There's not a whole lot of research in terms of survey or quantitative data on how Catholics approach issues like IVF and reproductive technologies, but the research that is out there suggests that most Catholics don't really consider IVF to be either wrong or they don't consider it to be a moral issue at all. So most Catholics who are experiencing infertility are more likely to be opting for something like IVF or at least considering it. So the ethical issues that they're thinking about might be more systemic issues related to cost. So it could be that they're affected by that and that they cannot afford IVF because it cost maybe $25,000 per cycle, and it may not be effective the first time or the second time or the third time. So it could really be out of reach for a lot of couples. A lot of the women I talked to were also similarly to the women using nap concerned about embryo destruction. And so that put them in tension with some of the clinics that they were using for IVF because many of these clinics don't share the perspective that the dignity of the embryo is a value that should be upheld or that factors into the process of IVF. But a lot of women I talked to did find that that mattered to them. But in some instances, they had to compromise because clinics wouldn't agree to not discard embryos that were judged as not being viable. So there was some tension there, for sure. In your research, you say that there are there were some women who said that the church
1: kind of, the teaching doesn't bear on I me. Mean, I don't see this as a, a have, having anything to do with my faith or religious teaching. But that's not what the majority of women, even women who used IVF, they still very much saw those things as related. So they were concerned with things like embryo destruction. What do you think the church should be doing to listen to these women who are, you know, thinking about ethical questions and thinking about church teaching, but coming to a different conclusion? How should the church include them?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the main takeaway that has come out of my interviews, I would say, is the lack of recognition of women and couples who are contending with infertility in church settings, not only in in terms of moral theology or the church's teaching on these issues, but more generally in liturgical settings and parish life. Like I said before, I think The overwhelming sense that a lot of women have from the church is that they're supposed to be mothers, that it's easy to become a mother, and if they don't, that there's something wrong with them. And that really is difficult to address as a church, I think, without real structural reform, because a lot of the church documents that we rely on continue this romanticization of motherhood with an all-male celibate clergy. There aren't a lot of voices getting airtime in the church on Sunday that can speak to the embodied experience of motherhood or infertility. And I think even in married life in the church, there's really not a lot of focus on infertility, despite it being quite common. 10 to 15% of couples may experience something like this. But in individual parishes, that may only be a couple families. And so it's difficult to make room for those kinds of. Support systems to flourish in, on a parish level. In my own experience researching this topic, I reached out to a number of parishes to ask if they would be willing to advertise my study in the bulletin because I wanted to talk to more women. And a number of them responded and said, This issue is either too controversial or no one in our parish would be willing to talk to you about it. And it was just a very striking contrast from the reception I had advertising on social media, because a lot of Catholic women using Twitter or who were on Facebook were eager to talk to me. And many, I would say most, even said they had never had the chance to talk about this in a Catholic setting, that no one had asked them, or that the guilt and shame they felt around the treatment choices they made left them feeling unable to share this kind of information in a church setting. So I think that despite the current efforts around synodality, which I really support and I'm happy to see moving forward, I think there's still a lot of progress that needs to be made to make it possible for women who are dealing with infertility to feel comfortable actually voicing their concerns and sharing their experiences because The church has such a climate of judgment around these issues, which is supported by its official teaching that is so prescriptive that it makes it really challenging for women who have made choices that come from an informed conscience but don't necessarily conform to church teaching to find a place in the church that doesn't feel stigmatizing. And even for women who are aligned with church teaching, there's still that element of stigma in facing infertility at all that comes in. And I think it's important just to say that many women and couples who struggle with infertility don't have children and discern a vocation in their marital life that doesn't involve children, whether biological or adopted, and that that's an option that's not really recognized much at all in the church. Even in Amoris Letizia, I think Pope Francis is advocating for accompaniment of families in irregular situations. And that's certainly progress. But at the same time, I think that language of irregular situations is still casting a sense of judgment on families that don't conform to this one model of the nuclear family, which isn't even something we see biblically represented. It's really a new and European way of looking at family life. And so I think there's resources in the tradition, certainly, that could help us think more creatively about kinship to think about family life in more expansive when welcoming and inclusive ways. But for the church to culturally and structurally do that work, I think there's a lot more reforms and broader changes that need to be made.
1: What changes did the women you spoke with bring up as something that would make them feel like they could break the culture of silence that you mentioned, to be able to talk about it, to feel more supported, to feel that the church is more pro-family, not just when it's sort of easy, but when it's be extra hard.
2: And I think it depends on who you ask. So the women I talk to who are compelled by church teaching, who feel strongly that it is a source of moral wisdom and guidance in their lives, tend to be more interested in diocesan supported bishop approved programming. So some women have created their own infertility support groups in partnership with their diocese. Those are still quite rare, but they do exist here and there. Some have started retreats for other women who are facing diagnoses of infertility and for couples because men also can experience a lot of grief and a spiritual crisis sometimes around these issues as well. Women who are adhering to church teaching tend to want these kinds of More institutional avenues of support. They're not necessarily looking for changes in church teaching. They're looking for more recognition of this as an issue facing Catholic families. On the other hand, women who are more critical of church teaching, maybe using IVF or thinking about IVF or other options like artificial insemination, that sort of thing, I would say their critiques and requests tended to be a lot broader. In terms of reforms, the status of women in the church in general came up quite a bit in interviews among women who were more critical of the church's teaching. A lot of women connected the lack of recognition of women facing infertility with the lack of women's leadership in the church or the lack of support for family leave policies. Similarly, I think a lot of those women were also mentioning the sex abuse crisis as a huge sticking point for how they felt unsupported in the church. One woman in particular mentioned that it was really difficult for her to feel judged by the church, to feel stigmatized for using something like IVF, and at the same time see an encounter that the church was covering up sexual abuse of children, to feel like she was the one being shamed in that situation, when in fact the church was committing egregious violations was really damaging for her faith. And I think that lack of trust of the hierarchy based on their behavior in responding to the sex abuse crisis so poorly has really damaged the sense of confidence that women who are more critical of church teaching have in expecting the church to do anything useful to respond to the issues that they're voicing. So I think repairing that kind of relationship, building trust, Humility from the hierarchy would all be first steps necessary before progress could be made on this particular issue.
0: We'll have more of Regina's conversation with Emma McDonald in a minute. This October 17th, our Commonweal Conversations dinner event in New York is honoring Carrie Robinson of the Leadership Roundtable and Amy Goldman of the GHR Foundation with our Catholic in the Public Square Award. Come join Commonweal's editors and staff, along with hundreds of our writers, friends, readers, and fans. For ticket information, including deeply discounted tickets for readers 30 and under, visit commonwealconversations.org. That's commonwealconversations, all one word, .org.
1: You also spoke with Catholic healthcare providers and some of them do administer IVF. What did you learn from them?
2: Yeah, that was really interesting. I didn't speak with as many Catholic healthcare providers as women facing infertility in part because they're a much smaller group. But of the physicians I spoke to who provided IVF, I would say some of the same themes emerged. One physician I remember said that in his parish setting, he actually avoided taking on leadership opportunities because he was concerned that if he ran for parish council, people would find out what he did for a living and they might judge him for providing IVF. At the same time, he, unlike some of his colleagues who offered reproductive technologies, was concerned about embryo destruction. And so he found ways in his practice to try to help the couples that he saw avoid making too many embryos, which often happens in the process of IVF as a lot of people are becoming more aware of given the Dobbs decision. Often in the process of IVF, you may end up with six or 10 embryos and freeze a bunch of them and decide whether you want to use them all as you discern how many kids you'd like to try to have. And a lot of couples, if IVF is successful, may have three, four, six leftover embryos. And that can be, for the Catholic women I spoke to at least, a real point of tension for them morally to figure out what to do with these leftover embryos. But also for physicians who are Catholic, facilitating IVF and recognizing that they are helping couples through the process of deciding what to do with those embryos can also be morally burdensome. And so this particular physician would advise couples to only make the number of embryos that they knew they were willing to implant so as to avoid having those embryos left over. But another physician I spoke to didn't see that as a moral issue. He didn't encourage making a huge number of embryos in any individual couple's situation, but he did see no problem with grading embryos, discarding those that seemed less viable. To him, it was part of the medical procedure and a lot of those embryos were never going to be viable, and so it wasn't so much of a moral issue for
1: him. I was also thinking of one woman that you spoke with, someone who was dealing with infertility. She had mentioned that she was really uncomfortable with the fact that the, the IVF clinic wouldn't implant embryos with a high risk of Down syndrome.
2: So depending on the clinic, it's common for some clinics to try to encourage couples using their services to add on genetic diagnosis as part of the IVF services and oftentimes this is pitched as a way to save money because if you have the clinic create six embryos and you're going to pay to have one implanted at a time maybe two implanted at a time but typically just one you may want them to pick the best embryo so that that money that you are paying them to implant that first one has the best chance of turning into a viable pregnancy and so a lot of clinics will grade embryos using various kinds of genetic diagnostic technology. And these cost extra. There's varying reports about how accurate they are, how well they actually represent the kinds of risks that they claim to, especially when it gets into different kinds of disorders that they're claiming to show a higher risk of, that sort of thing. But a lot of clinics will recommend implanting the ones that appear to have the best score, the best result, the best diagnostic indicators. And so some of the women I talked to felt as though that was really not aligning with their values as Catholics because they, as Catholics, wanted to be open to whatever life God wanted to give them. And they felt that by learning all of this information about these various embryos and Selecting the supposed best embryo to implant, they were selecting against disability. And so in some cases, that's definitely happening. In other cases, I think clinics portray it as more of an issue of viability rather than disability because some of these abnormalities may prevent an embryo from actually successfully implanting and growing. But it's hard for the patient on the other end to know the difference between those, and clinics rarely share that information in a transparent and helpful way. And typically, they're not necessarily voicing a commitment to that kind of disability-friendly or inclusive way of looking at IVF. And that's in part in response to cultural pressures, I think, that really encourage families to select the healthiest, supposed healthiest and best embryos. So it's the clinics, I think, are responding to the market that they have. And so that the people in that market that have these less common views about accepting embryos with chromosomal abnormalities that would present as disabilities, I think it is challenging for those values to be lived out in the clinic setting because sometimes the contracts even exclude the possibility of implanting embryos
1: that have those diagnostic indicators. What motivated you to do this research? How did you come to to research infertility?
2: So growing up in the Baltimore area, my church that my family went to had a female pastoral life director. And so I grew up not with a parish priest, but with a rotating set of priests who reported to our pastoral life director and seeing her as a woman in leadership in the church and being in a church setting that had a lot of programming, supporting women's leadership was a really great environment to be brought up in as a Catholic. And unfortunately, when I left high school and went to college, I first started to recognize that this was somewhat atypical in the church and that Actually, a lot of church settings don't really make that kind of room for women to develop as leaders and to have that kind of voice. And part of the reason I noticed that was a lot of more progressive and secular people I encountered asked me, why are you Catholic when the church doesn't allow women to be clergy? Or why are you Catholic when birth control is seen as this like huge moral issue? And It was very striking to me the difference between my sense of what it meant to be Catholic and this cultural sense from people outside the church of what it meant to be Catholic. And when I looked into it further, I realized what they're talking about, on the one hand, can come across as somewhat stereotypical and maybe accusatory, but at the same time, it does track with a lot of what the USCCB is saying in terms of what matters about being Catholic. And that got me really interested in studying the dynamics of concrete experiences of Catholics as they relate to these ecclesial statements and ecclesial positions that a lot of people are disregarding. So I became interested in infertility as a case study of that because unlike abortion, I think infertility is a more complicated example in that Catholic families who are pursuing something the church really emphasizes as a positive ideal starting a family are also potentially in conflict with this official teaching on something like IVF. And in its intricacy, the church's teaching isn't necessarily contradictory, but I think intuitively to a lot of Catholics, this idea that the church is pro-family doesn't really align well with the sense that you can't pursue any of these medical treatments for infertility. And so that kind of experience of Catholics who are living out their faith in these concrete ways, thinking about the church's social teaching, and yet are at odds with this official teaching at the same time, I just became really interested in those dynamics to see where is this disconnect coming from and why is it that the church continues to promote these really prescriptive norms that don't seem to be relevant to most Catholics and don't seem to compel many people to seek out these catholic alternatives pope francis has proposed synodality listening listening
1: together as a way of moving forward through disagreements and in really activating the laity as full members of the church in what ways do you think synodality or even the current synod could help us through some of these discussions
2: i think the emphasis on dialogue in synodality is a helpful orienting value to engage catholic lay people in discussions related to family formation and fertility. I think I also have reservations about the effectiveness of synodality in the current church that we have and I still support struggling through the process all the same. But I do wonder having completed this extensive set of interviews, how effective something like dialogue and journeying together can really be in a church that's so polarized, at least in the United States. I think especially when it comes to issues like infertility, they're very personal. They're very often emotionally and spiritually burdensome. And for many women who are in the thick of that experience, being in dialogue with Other women who fundamentally disagree about the moral stakes of something like IVF, I think is a tricky ask to make of someone. And I don't know that's something I would recommend. I think that process of moral discernment in terms of treatment choices is extremely important. But I also think in a church that's tended to be quite judgmental on issues of sexual ethics, especially choices women are making, and hasn't necessarily been as critical of its own missteps and patriarchal tendencies, I think the chances for that kind of dialogue to be fruitful for the women involved are not as high as I think would be ideal to encourage that kind of participation. In my own work, I considered doing focused groups, which are a common qualitative methodology, and Part of the reason I decided to do individual interviews is because I think it's really challenging to be a good enough discussion facilitator to bring together people who are coming from really different perspectives and also making decisions in real time about these issues and to have participants come away feeling empowered as moral agents and also feeling more unified as a church. And so I think... um, We as Catholics need better training and more practice in these kinds of dialogue before we get to these issues that are so fraught, tricky, and close to home and overlooked in the church. So I think awareness and engagement with perspectives is really important right now, but how to engage people who are in the midst of these struggles in a way that will be helpful to them, I think is more complicated than just advocating for dialogue. I think a resource that would be potentially more effective than synodality would be drawing on Catholic social teaching. There's a lot of really helpful principles in Catholic social teaching that relate really well to the complexity of participating in the reproductive marketplace because using NAPRO or IVF, both of those are consumer transactions. They're embodied, they involve Theological issues, but they're also participation in the marketplace. And I think Catholic social teaching is a really helpful resource to help families think through the really complicated aspects of those kinds of decisions. And the great thing about those principles is that they're more flexible in application to concrete scenarios. And so, unlike the church's official teaching, which is very prescriptively against IVF and artificial insemination, something like Catholic social teaching. Engages the particular person or couple in the work of thinking through how something like solidarity with people with fewer resources or the dignity of the human person might apply in an IVF clinic situation. And so I think that the church has limited its own influence by making these very prescriptive norms because. They're not encouraging people to make these kinds of connections between these really fruitful teachings, Catholic social teaching, and the concrete situations people are facing as they decide between infertility treatments and make these broader family formation decisions that could involve adoption, not having children, participating in their community in other ways. Emma, thank you so much for talking with me. Thanks for having me.
0: The Commonweal Podcast is produced by associate editor Griffin Alenick and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Budway composed the music and David Dalt did the editing. If you like what you heard, please rate and review the show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And please share it with friends, family, and anyone else who enjoys thoughtful, in-depth conversations like the ones we have here. I'm Dominic Preziosi for the Commonweal Podcast.